The Monday Investment Club is brought to you by Omnis Investments. This podcast is for information only and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. If you have any questions, please contact your financial advisor. Welcome to the Monday Investment Club. I'm Rohit Vaswani from Omnis Investments, and today we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're now at the end of March. So what I thought we could do today, in addition to looking at what happened in markets last week, is to recap on what's happened in 2021 so far. To help me do that, I'm joined by Colin Gellatley, Deputy CIO of Omnis Investments. Hi, Colin. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks, Rohit. Good to be here. So let's go around the world as I usually do, but I'd welcome your thoughts on, on what has happened around the world in, in the first three months of 2021. Let's start with the, with the US. So last week, the S&P 500 returned 1.6%. Investors seem to continue weighing optimism about reopening against inflation and interest rate concerns. There are also concerns about AstraZeneca's data on vaccine effectiveness, as well as rising infection numbers in some states. Biden came out last week and said that uh, he aims to vaccinate 200 million Americans in his first 100 days. And on the data front, even though there are concerns around inflation, it appeared to be more muted down at 1.4% in February versus 1.5% in, in January. But, but Colin, a lot has happened in, in the US this year. So, so far, the S&P 500 is, is up 6%. Uh, since the beginning of January. Treasury yields have, have, have risen significantly. Smaller companies, uh, which we normally use the Russell 2000 to track, are up 12%. And, and value stocks are doing better than, than growth stocks. New president, you know, $1.9 trillion of stimulus. What's your take on, on what's happened so far in the US, Colin? Yeah, you're, you're right to say that, uh, that a lot has happened. It seems like a, an exceptionally, exceptionally busy quarter. And that's... Um... The, uh, the elections back in November and then the subsequent congressional elections in January in Georgia seem, uh, seem almost a lifetime ago, but they're really quite key to, to understanding what's happened, I think. So, um, if we accept that it's been in a, an exceptionally, uh, action packed quarter and just try and oversimplify it for a bit, I think we can go back to those, uh, democratic Senate victories in Georgia in January, uh, as, as a really key event. They paved the way for, for Biden's 1.9 trillion stimulus. Um, and at the same time, you've had that, uh, you've had the positive effect of the vaccines, uh, paving the way for a reopening of, uh, of the economy. All that's led to, uh, to optimism over the economic outlook. I mean, GDP in some, uh, depending on, on your forecaster of choice, GDP could be up anywhere between seven or nine percent this year. So big, uh, big gains in economic output. And that's obviously had, uh, big ramifications for, uh, for the stock market. So, so on the, on the stock market, you know, you've talked about kind of the new president paving the way for, for reopening and the knock on effect that that's had on, on stock markets. Would you say that given what we knew in January, um, maybe after the congressional elections, given what we knew then, would you say the US stock market has performed as you would have expected? Well, I, I could truthfully say that I did not expect to see GameStop rise 1,700%, then fall 88% then rise 553% and fall 55% again after that. Uh, and similarly, we, we've, uh, we've seen headlines over the weekend about, um, about a big sell-off in the US on Friday afternoon, uh, apparently triggered by 20 billion of sales coming from a highly leveraged family office in Asia. And again, you know, did we see that coming? No, not at all. Uh, but more broadly, uh, the patterns uh, you know, are pretty much aligned with what we're expecting. So 
uh, the economic hopes, uh, that positive economic outlook, and that pushing treasury yields higher. This really is the key to understanding the, the rest of the, the rest of the market outputs. Now, that was something that, that we were expecting to see. We've, um, we've been a, a bit wary of how low, uh, bond yields have been for, for a little while now, expecting them to rise as the economic outlook improved. Now that, uh, that economic optimism and the rising bond yields, now that's positive for some companies. Economic optimism tends to be a good environment to make profits in. That tends to be good for, for equity, uh, equity owners. And so you've seen stocks of companies that are sensitive to the economic cycle do pretty well. Again, that was something that uh, hasn't come as a surprise to us. Conversely, the, uh, the rising bond yields put pressure on valuations of, of so-called growth stocks, um, typically big tech, uh, big tech companies where, um, the, the justification for share prices is lots and lots and lots of growth at some point in the future and eventual profitability, uh, at some point in the future. Uh, rising bond yields have put those stocks under pressure and, uh, and that area of markets face headwinds. Again, uh, that all fits, uh, all fits into the, the puzzle that we were piecing together at the start of the year. And, and, and where do we go from here? What, what can we expect for, for the rest of the year from, from what's happened so far? Well, I guess the, you know, the hackneyed cliche is to expect the unexpected. We've seen, uh, we've seen a few stories along those lines, but in terms of, uh, what we can, what we can try to get a grip on, I think, I think it's this tension between, uh, the good news about the economic optimism and, uh, and, uh, and what, uh, what rising bond yields infer. And then the, the, the tension that that causes on some area of the stock market. So it's good for companies. It's good for profits, but it's not good for valuations. And it's the tension between, uh, between the two that's really going to, uh, to set the tone, particularly given that the U.S. market is quite heavily weighted into, into these growth names, these tech names, uh, where the, where the valuation case, uh, could be, um, it could be undermined by, uh, by strongly rising bond yields. So, uh, how can we deal with this? We can, uh, we can look to tilt portfolios towards areas of the market, uh, where, uh, where, where the beneficiaries of rising bond yields are. So, uh, maybe smaller companies or active stock selection to, to shy away from, uh, from some of the most, uh, valuation sensitive names. Um, and then in, in terms of the, the outlook, Really to, to boil it down to, to one key point, I think it's going to be largely determined by the, the outlook for inflation. So some inflation is good. It's, uh, it's a healthy, uh, healthy part of an economic recovery, but too much inflation and bond yields, uh, will present a challenge to more than just the highly valued big tech names. So, uh, if, if you want to steer on the outlook for the U.S. stock market, I think keep your eyes, uh, eyes fixed on inflation measures. Thanks. So, so let's move on to, to Asia now. So the CSI 300, which consists of the 300 largest companies trading in the Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges, ended the week up 0.6% thanks to a rally on, on Friday. This was pretty much led by consumer staples and healthcare. Um, and importantly, this was the first positive week after five weeks of decline. Um, and since a record high in, in mid-Feb, the CSI 300 is now down 15% from that point and overall down 3.3% since the beginning of, of the year. So, so Colin, what's going on in, in China and, and what happens next? 
Well, there are three main stories in China. I think there's uh, geopolitical tensions, there's antitrust enforcement, and there's policy tightening. Now, the first of these uh, is important on a global scale, but it doesn't seem to be having too much impact uh, for investors at the moment. It's certainly worth watching, but it doesn't seem to be what's driving moves uh, at the moment. Uh, the second, the second aspect, the antitrust enforcement. Um, this is, uh, this is, you might have seen the headlines of, uh, the Chinese authorities kind of clamping down on some of the big tech names, um, under, under the guise of consumer protectionism from, um, uh, from, uh, lending practices, but, uh, with this idea that they've just got too big for their boots and they're starting to pose a sort of additional source of power or competitive source of power to the Chinese authorities. So clamping down on some of these big tech heavyweight names, uh, the likes of Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, uh, their stock prices have pulled back quite a bit as a result of that. Um, it's, uh, it's very difficult to, to forecast what's going to, going to happen there. Um, you know, th- these companies are, are big and important to the Chinese growth story. Uh, but, uh, but there's always a sense of, um, that they could be used as political footballs to some extent. So, um, so just something, something to be wary of there and, and a headwind to, to the China stock indices over the past few weeks. And the, the third, uh, third main headline is policy tightening. Uh, now this is really, really interesting. And it reminds me a bit of, uh, of sort of 2015, 2016. It almost seems like the Chinese authorities, uh, view, uh, global economic optimism as an opportunity to address some imbalances in the domestic economy. So uh, to rein back uh, lending, to try and shift the economy away from infrastructure spending towards uh, towards kind of consumer-driven demand. And that's okay if they get it right. But what we saw in 2015 and 2016 was the global economic, uh, or the global economy wasn't as strong as everyone had hoped. And, uh, and rather than tapping on the brake, the Chinese authorities stamped on it a, a, a little too hard, and uh, and you know the, at that point China not firing all cylinders became a problem for the global uh, global growth story as a whole. So it's uh, you know it's a fine a uh, fine balancing act that the Chinese authorities are trying to strike here, and uh, and if they get it right, then then okay, there's not too much more to to see perhaps. But uh, but if they get it wrong, if we see a repeat of 2015, 2016, um, then uh, then it could be uh, could be a rocky ride in China for a little bit longer yet. Okay, and and in in the Monday Investment Club, I often talk about oh Asia only, and, and within that we focus on 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 China. But obviously, there's a, more, a lot more to emerging markets than than just China. What other stories have dominated? Uh, emerging markets this quarter. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good point about the the construct of the emerging markets. Um, I think Asia now represents about seventy percent of the emerging market index, so it's quite easy to uh, to sort of forget that there are other places out there. Um, but uh, Latin America is still a component of the index. Russia is still a big part, and uh, and so are bits of Eastern Europe. And one of the key stories. Um, in the last uh, in the last week or so, has been in Turkey, uh, and this this kind of uh, is a good a good indicator of um, of a story that could that could matter for emerging markets as a whole. So what we've seen in uh, in Turkey is the central bank has been forced to raise interest rates to protect the currency. So that's what happens when um, when optimism about U.S. economic growth. 
uh, starts to ramp up, starts to uh, suck dollars into the US economy from overseas investors. That supports the dollar. The rising dollar is, uh, is a headwind for emerging markets. And emerging market central banks can be forced to raise their interest rates, which is not um, which is not helpful from a growth perspective. So uh, in Turkey, Erdogan basically sacked the uh, the chief central banker. That um, has been counterproductive from his perspective because uh, it undermines faith in the uh, in the independence of the central bank and the, uh, the currency has fallen again. So you've now got higher interest rates and still a weak currency. Uh, that just, uh, it's uh, an isolated event at the moment. It doesn't, uh, we don't think it's um, the first in a series of dominoes, but it does illustrate the challenges that uh, that emerging markets can face when um, when the global economy and the global economic outlook is so, uh, so to be US focused. Great, thanks. And 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 you're right. There's so much happening in on EN that it's uh, quite easy for us to just focus on 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 Asia and and, and China. But but clearly Turkey that that Turkey situation has been quite important uh, in, in in the last month or so. Um, let, a question which is maybe not necessarily explicitly on uh, on emerging markets as uh, alone because it's more of a global story. But do you have any views on on what's happened in in the Suez Canal? And the impact that that's going to have on on global trade. Now, I, I read this morning that um, we seem it seems to be that the ever given ever given ship has now been freed. Uh, but well, what's your take on on what's going on? Uh, I'll, I'll stay away from the uh, from the engineering takes. I've seen some uh, some great responses. Some of them from primary school children uh, trying to free the ship. And uh, if, if you've not if you've not uh, found your meme of choice, it's well worth a look. But from the uh, from the economic and investors' uh, impact, the um, the key bit here is the disruption of, uh, of global trade. So we've seen, um, you know, I think it's something like fifteen percent of global trade flows through the, the Suez Canal. So it can uh, it has a big impact on supply chains. Now, in the short term, uh, that is uh, that could be inflationary. Effectively, um, it creates shortages of uh, of supply, and uh, the the companies and the ships that have tried to deal with those uh, with the bottleneck caused by by the ship and the Suez Canal will start to go around the Cape of Good Hope, which is a lot more expensive. And so you'd have to, I guess, expect those costs to come through in the price that you pay for the goods that have been transported the long way around. Now, uh, this should just be a, a short term. Um, you know, short-term phenomenon, particularly if the if the ship's been freed, but it does feed into that angst that we were that we sort of touched on earlier. The idea that the inflationary outlook is really, really important for investors at the moment, and uh, that there's a, quite a bit of nervousness around inflation because of um, because of the the scale of the U.S. stimulus in particular. And you know, this story should prove temporary. It should. Uh, Shouldn't have long-term ramifications, but it's it, you know, it's arguably just a bit, uh, a bit unfortunately timed, and just um, it's going to add to some nerves that uh, that are already perhaps a little bit stretched. Yeah, because we didn't need, we didn't need any more negative news. Let's let's add one more to the pile. Um, so so let's turn to to, to Europe. The, the Eurostox 50 rose 0.8 percent last week on hopes of an economic recovery reversing earlier losses stemming from concerns about additional restrictions to curb the spread of the virus. And obviously, we've had the story about uh, the EU halting vaccine exports as well. Um, so France, France has extended its lockdown to two more regions. 
Belgium is closing schools, non-essential non shops and hairdressers for four weeks. Germany extended its lockdown to mid-April and has since retracted. Um, and so we've, we've got all of this happening in the background. Um, on the data front, interestingly, business activity in the Eurozone grew in March unexpectedly. Um, but so far, you know, the Eurostoxx 50 this year is up uh, almost five and a half percent. And across most of Europe, stock markets seem to be doing reasonably well, um, despite the issues around vaccination rollouts and resurgence of, of COVID vaccines. You know that we always talk about the difference between economy and stock market, and this is not this is a clear example of that. How do you see Europe moving from here at an economic level and then at a stock market level? Yeah, that point about uh, the difference between economics and and stock markets is really something to bear in mind, and I'll, I'll try and frame uh, frame the answer around that. So, uh, economically, you know, it's easy to be pretty uh, pretty negative on on Europe, really. Um, the the vaccine rollout has been uh, not good. I think that's an that's an understatement, but we'll we'll leave it there for now. The key thing uh, to point out is that it's improving. So it's almost so bad that it's uh, you know, that it, it can only go one way from here, really, and, and that way is is an improvement. And that that idea of, of improvement maybe helps us bridge the gap between uh, between the economy and the stock markets. The stock market always has to be looking forward. It's no good uh, as an investor uh, making your making your decisions based on things that have already happened. The stock market is uh, is trying to discount the future, basically. It's trying to bring uh, the future back to the present and, and bake in the price flat. So we always have to try and be one step ahead. And that improvement in uh, in the vaccine uh in vaccine expectations, vaccine rollout, and the, the consequent economic reopening is really the key to, to the European stock market story. You've got um, a reopening that's perhaps a quarter or so behind the reopenings uh, in, fingers crossed, in the UK and the US. But if you're a long-term investor, uh, a quarter, you know, three months is neither here nor there. Other than the fact that it maybe gives you the opportunity to position your portfolio ahead of that reopening, so you're not playing catch up, you're there ahead of time, and that's um, and that's where you want to be as an investor. The, the second point about uh, the difference between economies and, uh, and stock markets in Europe, in particular, is that uh, if we think about what Europe is good at, there's uh, I heard a really uh, a really good way to to think about this in terms of the kind of global supply chain and the global economy. So there's an argument that um, all this uh, incredible stuff gets designed in the US, manufactured in Asia, but using European machinery to manufacture it. And so Europe is really closely tied into the, uh, you know, the, the global economy and uh, it doesn't necessarily need European economies to be doing uh, particularly well for European companies to do well, to make profits and to benefit from, uh, from the optimism that, that, we're all, uh, that we're all seeing on the global economic outlook. Great, thanks. So, so let's finish off at, at, at home in the UK. So the FTSE 100 was up 0.6% last week and the domestically focused FTSE 250 was up 0.4%. Um, and the British pound was slightly weaker uh, last week, ending the week uh, $1.38 uh, per pound. So, but let's put it into context. So, so far, the FTSE 100 this year up 5.4%. Um, strong start to the year, 
you know, maybe cooled off a little bit relative to, to, to other markets. You know, the vaccination rollout in, in, in the UK is, 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 is phenomenal. Uh, I think we, we, we've crossed the 30 million mark over the weekend. Um, I'm not old enough, but I did get my jab last week. So, you know, it does seem like things are, are moving ahead um, and the economy will, will likely start opening up. I mean, we're, we're trying to get a, a, a reservation for, for dinner uh, the week of the 12th of April, and it's, it's almost impossible. Um, but there's this talk around the K recovery from here that cert- certain parts of the, of, of the market will do better than, than others or will recover quicker than others. What, what's your take? Yeah, that K-shaped recovery is uh, is really interesting, and I think you can extend the extend the analogy beyond the the pandemic. It could well be that, you know, like other things like uh, homeworking, like video conferencing, uh, the the pandemic has sort of accelerated pre existing trends. But the K-shaped recovery is is the idea that you get a you get a bifurcation basically in the economic out, outcome. You get the haves and the have-nots, and they're moving in opposite directions, and, and inequality rises. Um, that is uh, that's actually a, you know a big problem for for the economy as a whole. Uh, inequality is um, is not just a, a kind of moral issue; it's an economic one as well, and it's, um, it slows down the pace of uh, of economic growth and, uh, and productivity gains effectively. So it's it's certainly something something to look out for. Now, in in terms of the pandemic and in terms of the UK. Uh, and on a you know relatively short term horizon, sort of twelve to eighteen month horizons, there, there's reason to think that quite a bit of the UK economy might be on the the upper leg of that of that K shape. So uh, think about uh, this recession that's been caused by the pandemic, and it's been a service sector recession. Uh, we haven't been able to go to restaurants, we haven't been able to to go to the pub, cinema, uh, we haven't been able to go on holidays, all, all those kinds of things. Um, you know, the services sector. Has been uh, has been really hard hit, but it's also the part of the economy that really stands to benefit from reopening. Now, the, the UK economy is more heavily tilted to the services uh, sector than other economies, so uh, so really um, you know, should should enjoy one of the stronger uh, the stronger bounces um, and and get the most out of uh, get the most out of reopening. We've been looking at, at sterling over the last few weeks, and you know, since the start of the year, we've we've seen sterling strengthen quite significantly. Uh, where where do we go from here at a currency level? Sterling has been uh, it's been on a wild ride over the past few years. Obviously, with Brexit headlines uh, really at the fore, um, we sort of got to the got to the view uh, over the past few years that uh, that Brexit was just too much of a headache for international investors to. Um, to try to or to want to cope with, and that that led us to believe that basically UK assets were were just unloved and cheap as a result. So we've seen some of some of that unwind basically once um, well, Brexit hasn't quite been put to bed yet, has it? But uh, but the, you know, we're we're nearly there. We're um, you know, the, the agreements are roughly in place, um, and and that's just that basically given. Uh, Given sterling and UK assets a bit of a bit of breathing space, and I think some of the strength has got to do with that. You know, the uh, all the Brexit issues are in the past. We can uh, we can try and concentrate on uh, on sterling as we would any other uh, international currency, and the the currency uh, currency markets are notoriously uh, tricky, going on impossible to predict. So um, I'll get that in before I. Uh, before I say anything that uh, 
that can be used to uh, to point a finger at me a few months down the line. But basically, uh, when you look at currency markets, uh, you've got to you, you've got to think about interest rate differentials as um, as a kind of key driver. So the idea is that if you can get five percent interest uh, on a deposit in the UK and zero percent on a deposit um, elsewhere. Put your money in the UK. Take that five percent interest rate. So uh, that I, that um, that transaction, turning your money into sterling to put into a UK bank account and receive that higher interest rate, that strengthens sterling, and and so that can move um, that can move currency markets. Now, are we going to have five percent interest rates on our on our bank accounts anytime soon? I think that's uh, there's a very an infinitely small uh, possibility of that anytime soon. Um, so you've got to look at the bond markets, and you've seen uh, UK yields have have kind of tracked uh, tracked US yields higher, whereas those in Europe haven't really moved yet. So that interest rate differential is playing out through the through the bond market. That's an inflation view. Um, the UK uh, has higher inflation than elsewhere, and will likely see inflation pop a bit from here. We're expecting it to be a relatively uh, short-term phenomenon, and for uh, for inflation to uh, to rise fairly sharply over the next couple of months, uh, but then uh, kind of drift back down towards the sort of two percent level by the end of the year. So, uh, where does that where does that leave us on a sterling view? You know, still potentially some uh, some strength to come. The economic outlooks uh, looking uh, looking good. Um, but obviously, you've got to remember what it is you're comparing sterling to. And if it's sterling against the dollar, well, there are reasons to think that the dollar should be pretty strong as well on a, a sort of six to 12 month view. So, um, so possibly a slightly evasive and highly hedged answer, uh, but hopefully a, a, a little bit of insight into currency markets, if not, uh, if not a prediction on where they'll end up. And I wouldn't expect anything different from you, Colin. So, so thanks. Um, you've, you've, you briefly talked about inflation and, and kind of the path from here. Do you think there's a, you know, what, what does that do to interest rates in terms of hikes from here? Do we, do, do you expect any, uh, anytime soon? Uh, no time soon, to be honest. Um, the, it, you know, it's, it's the big question for investors, uh, for economic forecasters, for central bankers. Uh, what is going to happen to, to inflation? Because, uh, as we said before, a bit of inflation is good. Uh, too much inflation is is troubling, and the, the sort of the central narrative from uh, from central banks at the moment is yes, inflation is going to rise in the short term. Um, for for start, the statistical effect called the base effect, basically prices fell so sharply this time last year that on a year on year view, um, you know it's going to look like prices have risen from from a year ago. A year ago, the oil price was negative. So, um, so you're going to have, uh, what looks like inflation, but that base effect quickly passes out of the data. You've then got the reopening and we've seen in services, Rohit, you've just said you're struggling to get, uh, you're struggling to get uh, a booking at a restaurant. But if they said, well, you can have a booking, but you're going to have to pay 10% more on your bill. Would you take it? Well, do you know what? I, I, I'd be tempted to take it. I'm, can't uh, can't speak for you, Rohit, but I'd be tempted to take it. It's been so long since uh, since we've enjoyed a nice uh, a nice meal out. Would you pay ten percent more for it? Yeah, you probably would. But would you pay ten percent more for for the meal in uh, in a year's time? Uh, the novelty might have worn off by then. Hopefully, all going all going well. 
Um, and so again, that's maybe a, a temporary uh, a temporary issue. Then we've got supply chain uh, imbalances uh, where some companies will have will have gone under in the recession, and so supply will be restricted. When you've got that big uh, big recovery in spending as economies open up, matched against uh, disrupted supply chains and supply shortages from uh, from companies having left left the marketplace, then again that's inflationary. But it serves as uh, it should attract more capital in. It should attract people to to fill up that supply side shortage. So again, it should prove temporary. This is the argument of central banks at the moment, who are also pointing to a lot of slack in in labour markets and saying, yes, there will be some inflation, but it will prove temporary. That allows them to look through it and to not raise interest rates uh, and just say inflation is coming down. We don't need to raise interest rates and. Uh, you know that that's kind of where we're at as well. That's that's what we think is the most likely uh, the most likely situation. So uh, you're probably looking tail end of 2022 before uh, before you get um, or before you're having to think about rising interest rates. Now that uh, that's a fairly sanguine outlook. We think that's pretty encouraging for stock markets in particular, but it, it obviously poses a risk if uh, inflation comes in hotter. If wages start to start to rise and there are signs that inflation is more than a temporary factor, then um, you know that that lower lower for longer argument starts to unwind fairly quickly, and uh, and that that could uh, could get interesting for for stock market investors. Thank you, thank you very much, Colin, for for, for kind of being here today and and going around the world with me and, and kind of reviewing what's 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 happened in the last 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 three months hopefully we'll have you back on soon and we can see how things have, have panned out yeah I, I look forward to it that's um you know that idea of going around the world uh, yeah hopefully at some point we'll be doing that uh, doing that in real life rather than just over zoom but it's been a pleasure to be here thanks for it yeah i i absolutely hope that we can start traveling soon believe me Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you to all for, for tuning in today. Next Monday is a bank holiday. So we are going to take a, if, I'm, if I may say so myself, a well-deserved break next Monday. And we will be back again with the Monday Investment Club on the 12th of April. I hope you all have a wonderful Easter. Thank you. The Monday Investment Club is brought to you by Omnis Investments, which is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.